we are beginning a new series uh, this week, and so yeah, thanks Peter for throwing out the slide. So we're staying in Matthew. We've been spent. We've spent uh, before our kind of holiday break. Uh, we've spent six weeks uh, in Matthew, looking at personal encounters with Jesus through our face-to-face series. Um, and so we're staying in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, that uh, Matthew's account of the life story of Jesus, uh, focusing on his ministry and his death and resurrection and. We're staying in Matthew, but now we're, we're shifting from face-to-face uh, with Jesus to sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. Uh, we're going from face-to-face to learning from uh, Jesus as the uh, leader of his disciples. And, and so this section uh, of Scripture is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so it's, it's Matthew chapter 5 through to verse 7 and... And as Deb said, don't just take my word for it. Really encourage you to, to spend time. It's only two chapters. Um, so over the next... Um, so we're doing four weeks now and then we're going to take a break as we focus on Christmas and, and New Year and then we're going to pick this back up in February to, to finish off the Sermon on the Mount. And so you've got months and months and months to spend time uh, sitting with these two passages. And, and as Deb said, I do encourage you, if you've got questions... Or especially if you've got answers, that would be really lovely, um, to, to, to share them with me. If stuff comes out of these, these passages, uh, that's a light bulb moment. I really encourage you to share them, not just with me, but with others. We're going to sit with these uh, chapters as a church uh, for a period of time. And so it's commonly called the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, most uh, commentators would, uh, who, who translate the, the Greek would say that's a fairly lofty title for it. It was more likely a grassy hillside or a barren hillside, um, but, but not so much a, a high mountain, but we still want to go with the, the graphic of a mountain because it looks cool. Um, and, and so we're introduced to this story uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, as Lauren read for us, and it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds... And so in the early chapters of Matthew, um, after the birth story, we see Jesus beginning his preaching ministry. We see Jesus beginning his healing ministry and delivering uh, demons out of people, casting demons out of people. And and as you would imagine, that draws a crowd. And and so crowds of people start following Jesus. We're we're told in all of the Gospels that, that large crowds followed him. At times, Jesus couldn't go into towns because of the crowds the number of people that were following him. At times, people couldn't get to Jesus um, because of the crowd surrounding the house that was in, and so they had to cut holes through the roof to get their injured friends to him. And, and so crowds were following Jesus, and we're told when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside or a hillside uh, and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Sorry, I've missed the M, the. He began to teach them. And so we've got two groups of people here. We've got crowds and we've got disciples. So it says Jesus saw the crowds. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so before we begin exploring the Sermon on the Mount, we need to decide who are we? Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching his disciples. This is Jesus' core discipleship manual. This is the, 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 the teaching that Jesus gives to his followers to say, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is what living the kingdom of heaven life looks like. But he does it in the hearing of the crowds. And so throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds kind of pop up 
a few times. And, and we see at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount that the crowds were still there. They're still there listening and they're, and they're amazed at Jesus' teaching. And so we need to decide, well, who are we? The, the crowds were those who were just kind of interested in Jesus. They were curious. They were, they were kind of like they'd heard some amazing things about this, this man named Jesus. They'd heard there was this guy who was, who was uh, injured and he was healed. There was a, a man with leprosy and he was healed. And, and there was these people with demons and they had the demons cast out. And the crazy person who was, who was raving lunatic or the deaf mute person could, could speak and was calm. And, and so they'd heard some amazing things about him. They'd perhaps even heard some amazing teaching from him, but they weren't yet disciples. They were interested parties. They were hanging around this Jesus movement to see what could happen. Some of them were, were probably sick and injured or, or, or spiritually oppressed themselves, and they were, they were kind of hanging around Jesus in the crowd to see what they could get out of it for themselves. Later on, and this comes a bit before that, but later on we see that if you hang around Jesus long enough, you get fed. And so the crowds were, were not disciples, they were, they were interested parties. But the disciples were those who, who, as far as they could at this stage of time, in their understanding, they believed in Jesus. Disciple just essentially means student, follower. And so they were committed to following Jesus. Not just because it was cool, or the crowds were. They were those who had put their trust in Jesus, who had decided to follow him. And so at this stage, it's not just talking about the 12 disciples because he hadn't called them all yet. He hadn't appointed the 12. He'd called some of them. Uh, at this stage, we're talking about all of those who have decided to follow Jesus, to, to commit to that course on their life. And so we need to decide, who are we? You need to decide, who are you? Are you part of the crowd? Are you kind of hanging around this Jesus thing to see where it leads, to see what comes of it? Maybe you'll get something out of it. Or are you a disciple? Are you committed to following Jesus as the purpose of your life? Are you a disciple? Are you committed to be a student of Jesus, to learn from him, to be like him as the guiding principles of your life? See, Jesus, when he's delivering this sermon, and for those of you who think, well, Jesus gave short sermons. Nick, you should probably try and trim yours down. Every commentary I read said, this is no doubt a summary of a much longer message. Um, and so when Jesus is delivering this sermon, everyone hears it who's there. The crowds hear the message. The disciples hear the message. But for the disciples, the committed followers, this is Jesus' instructions for how to be a disciple. For the crowds, it's invitation to the kingdom life. It's invitation to, to live a life that is different, to enter into being a disciple. And so what I want you to do this morning is not to, to feel like, oh, well, I should say I'm a disciple because that's clearly, uh, from, from what Nick's saying, that's clearly what I should be. I want you to be honest with yourself. You're not confessing to anyone else this morning. Where are you? Are you part of the crowd or are you a disciple? 
Maybe you were a disciple and you've kind of drifted back into hanging on as part of the crowd. Maybe you've kind of come as far as being part of the crowd, but you wouldn't yet own that you're a disciple of Jesus. Because if you're part of the crowd, I, I want you to hear in this message from Jesus a beautiful invitation into a kingdom. That is beautiful. That is wonderful. That is so radically different to the kingdom of this world that we struggle to comprehend it. If, you, if you're part of the crowd but not yet a disciple, I want, I want you through this series to, to, to see it as a window into what being a disciple might look like. If you're already a disciple, if you've already made that decision in your life, and you're sticking to that decision that I will follow Jesus, the old uh, hymn, cross before me, well behind me, no turning back. If you've made that decision that you are a student of Jesus, then I want you to take these words throughout all of Scripture we take seriously, but I want you to take these words of Jesus in this message from the hillside seriously. This is some of the most challenging words Jesus speaks to his disciples. So, so challenging so that some people throughout history have said, well, it's, it's an unrealistic ideal that Jesus doesn't expect from us. Some say it's a, it's a picture of Jesus talking about what life will be like when he comes in his 1,000-year literal reign, um, depending on what we believe about millennialism. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, Leave it there. <laughs> You're in a better place than us. <laughs> but, 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 the, but the essence is, some people see this as so challenging, these words in Matthew chapter 5 through to 7, that it must be for another time because we couldn't hope to live it out now. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, I want to encourage you that Jesus intends for us to take this as his teaching and what it looks like to be a disciple. And so Jesus sits down and he teaches his disciples, but the crowds are still there. And it says, He said, Blessed. Jesus begins his teachings with a series of declarations around what kind of people are blessed. What kind of people are blessed? And, and, and he makes, in fact, about eight declarations about the kinds of people that he, as God, declares to be blessed. It only takes a quick search through uh, social media um, to discover that the world has a particular picture of what it considers blessed. Um, and so if you're not a social media person, let me give you a crash course for a moment. Uh, there's these things called uh, social platforms that, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, but what they use is this thing called a hashtag. Um, you might know it as a pound sign um, or, or something like that, but hashtag. And so what you can do is if you attach to your post, your picture, your text, if you attach a hashtag to it, then people can search what other people are saying about blessed. And so hashtag blessed 
puts your post in a pool of things in the worldwide interwebs of things that we consider to be blessed. And so it only takes a quick search of, of hashtag blessed to get a bit of a picture of what the world considers blessed. And like all internet searches, I can't show you every picture that came up um, when I did this. And so uh, I've blacked out the names because I don't know these people and it's not fair for them to show up named in a sermon uh, somewhere in Australia. Um, but this guy on the, on the left here, uh, his, his uh, Instagram post, hashtag blessed, uh, his selfie, he's got the gold chains, the gold rings, uh, he's got a cigar, which no doubt, I don't know anything about cigars, but it looks, if you're into cigars, impressive. And, and so he's hashtag blessed because he's wearing all the bling, he's got all the gold, he's got it happening. This person in the middle took flight, plane emoji, plane emoji, and landed in the end zone, plane emoji, plane emoji. He, he scored a touchdown, and so he's hashtag blessed. The person on the far right, my parents just bought my sisters and I, my parents just bought my sisters and I with some apple, they're not blessed with great grammar, but let's, my parents just bought my sisters and I with some apple watches, apple emoji, watch emoji, hashtag blessed, and the picture is three apple watch boxes. I can't, they, that's what they come look like. And so they're blessed because they just got a free watch, an Apple watch. And so I'm hashtag blessed. And, and, and the, the pictures I chose not to show you is, uh, I was surprised to see on Instagram, most people think they're hashtag blessed because they've got chiseled bodies. And they've been to the gym a lot. And, and it's not because I've worked hard, it's because I'm hashtag blessed. Which, looking at those pictures, and after being on holidays for a few weeks, and... and, and uh, uh, growing in, in ways that sometimes we don't want to grow, I was feeling not blessed um, in response to that. But, but it doesn't take long searching through social media like that to get, we have this idea of, of what it means to be blessed. And, and we can poke fun at the, the social media extremes of that. But we all carry this idea of what it means to be blessed. We, we think, oh, what a blessing, as it is a blessing when, when we get a place to live. What a, what a blessing to have the material blessings. We, it's hard to describe it without using the word blessing. We think of getting things, of having things, of, of having material comfort, of, 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 uh, of, of, of things in life or achievements in life. We think of them as examples of being blessed. And I don't want to suggest that that's not true. I don't want to suggest that. God is a good father who longs to give good things to his children. As we heard the testimony this morning of, of John having a home beyond what we could ask or imagine, which is what we prayed for. And just on that, look, I've been trying to work with John a bit this week. The, Steve mentioned the amount of rent that he's paying, and I won't mention it now because this will go on a podcast, but, but that was $70 less than the cheapest place I could find John to possibly consider renting, which was 40 minutes from Yass. And so for God to bless John with that in Yass, with more than we could possibly ask or imagine, is just amazing. And so that is a blessing, but, but that's not the kind of thing that Jesus says when he declares the type of people that are blessed. When he opens the, the Sermon on the Mount, this discipleship teaching, he, 
He doesn't focus on blessed are those who have homes, blessed are those that have the fastest chariots, blessed are those who have chiseled gladiatorial bodies. He says, blessed are the poor, blessed are mourners, blessed are meek, blessed are hungry and thirsty people, blessed are merciful people, blessed are pure people, blessed are peacemakers. And this is the one that just completely breaks the mould of worldly blessing. Blessed are persecuted people. So this is, this is people describe this as kind of like the preamble to Jesus' discipleship teaching. This is the thing that we're meant to to view the rest of Jesus' teaching through. These declarations about, about who is blessed. It's One commentator, when I was studying for this, said it's like the, the US Constitution's preamble that sets the tone for everything else and it says, we the people. It doesn't begin with His Royal Highness or it begins with the people because so uh, sewn into the fabric of who the United States are is it's about the people of America and, and, and that sets the tone for the entire constitution and, and people have compared this to, to much greater is Jesus teaching than the US constitution of course but, but people kind of say this is like a preamble to all that it means to be a follower of Jesus in his own teaching and, and Jesus turns upside down our concept of what it means to be blessed. Jesus turns upside down our priorities and for some of us who've kind of either been disciples or, or been in the crowd for a period of time where we're so familiar with these few verses of Scripture, we maybe don't feel the tension. But what I want to encourage you to do is, is to, to sit for a moment with the tension this morning of the, the gulf between... I can go backwards... Between this, between the bling, the touchdown, the Apple Watches, the, the homes, between, between what we naturally think of as being blessed and this, poor, mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty, merciful, pure, peacemakers, persecuted. I want you to feel that tension. Because it's not just a tension between Facebook and Matthew chapter 5. It's a tension between our natural feelings of being blessed and what Jesus declares to be blessed. This is not just some lovely, airy-fairy statements from Jesus. This is the core of what the kingdom is about. This is the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Unless we feel that tension, unless we acknowledge that tension within us, that the blessing, the kind of blessing that I, as Nick Barber, who live in Yas, the kind of blessing that I pursue is radically different. The kind of blessing that I pursue in my human nature is radically different to what Jesus declares to be blessed in kingdom terms. Being a disciple of Jesus means being different. I've said it before, but it's become to grate me even more and more and more. And I've actually said this phrase myself, so I'm kind of cranky at myself as well. But, but that phrase we sometimes say is, we just need the world to see that Christians are just normal people. 
Well, if we embrace Jesus' teaching, what we want to see, want the world to see is that Christians are radically abnormal people. I get what we're trying to say with that normal people, that we're not a cult or we're not, you know, voodoo magicians or something like that. I get the heart behind it, but, but if your goal as a disciple of Jesus is for people to see that you're just normal, I want to suggest you've got the wrong goal. Being a disciple of Jesus means being radically different. It means adopting a different set of values and priorities for your life. It means adopting a different understanding of what it means to be blessed. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) What this literally means are blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. See, Jesus spoke into a context where there were the spiritual elite, there were the Pharisees and the high priests and there were those who, who, who stood publicly in the space of prayer in their community and said, thank you, I'm not like everybody else. Thank you, I'm not a Gentile or a woman. Thank you, I'm not a tax collector. That that was an accepted practice of prayer. Because they, their concept was, blessed are the spiritually elite. Surely the kingdom of heaven belongs to anyone apart from God. It belongs to the spiritual elite. But Jesus says, no. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who understand that there is no self-help available to them that will give them the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are completely dependent upon God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit because only the poor in spirit can ever be in that place where they cry out for the one who can save. And so Jesus' first words about discipleship are being a disciple is not about being spiritually elite. It's not about being better than others or holier than thou. It's about understanding that you only stand by the grace of God. That you only stand in complete dependence Upon God, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We naturally consider ourselves blessed when when we are protected from the tragedies, from the hardships of life. And, and so we don't consider, if you're mourning, then that's obviously because you, there's an absence of blessing. Mourning is grieving, lamenting things that shouldn't be as they are. And so, so it bends our brains a little bit to think, how can you possibly be blessed if you mourn? If you have to mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, not those who stand apart from suffering and brokenness. So the kingdom of heaven is not about being in an ivory tower. The kingdom of heaven is not about as the church, as Jesus' followers withdrawing into the enclave of the church 
separating ourselves off from the pain of life, but engaging deeply with it. The, the, the kingdom of heaven, being a disciple of Jesus, is like being like Jesus, who at the grief of the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, he himself wept. Though he, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, he still entered into the grief of that life moment and wept and mourned. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. And so to be followers of Jesus involves mourning and lamenting, not just our own grief, but, but crying out to God in, in grief that, about all that is not right about the world that we live in. Romans talks about all of creation groaning, waiting, waiting for redemption. And so we celebrate with, with testimony the great things that God has done in our life, but we also need to be a people that, that mourn, that grieve, that enter into the pain of this world and cry out to God to intervene. Because Jesus promises that, that part of what it means to mourn is to enter into a space of receiving comfort from God. This is a now present reality. We're blessed when we mourn before God because He brings comfort into the here and now, but He is also the God that promises a day where there will be no more sadness. But we don't experience blessing by trying to separate ourselves from the sadness of the world that we live in. We experience blessing by entering into it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The Greek word here is um, difficult to translate into English because all of our English words for gentleness also imply some level of weakness. We don't consider meek to be necessarily a positive quality in our culture and uh, probably says something of the, the English Caucasian uh, descendants that every, every word about, about gentleness that we have implies some level of, meekness, of, of weakness. Um, but, but the Greek word is this combination of gentleness and profound strength. It's, it's a word that's used to describe Jesus who, who did not shy away from rebuking uh, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees or rebuking his own disciples when, when uh, they erred. It's not a word that involves weakness. It's a combination of strength and gentleness. It's those who do not assert themselves over others for personal gain. Jesus is the model of what it means to be profoundly strong, yet gentle. Not using his power to assert himself over others, to, to establish his own benefit, but to establish the benefit of others. And so Jesus says, the earth belongs not to the harsh, 
to the aggressive, to the domineering, to those who lord it over others, who, who use force for personal gain. The, the earth, Jesus says, doesn't belong to those. It belongs to those who embrace meekness, strength expressed in gentleness. And so as disciples of Jesus, we can think about, well, how does this show up in my business? How does this show up in my workplace? Because, because you know, none of us are particularly world leaders at the moment. Um, but, but so we don't have that opportunity. I say speak for myself. Uh, um, you might be a world leader in coffee, Daniel. Just not everyone knows about it yet. Um, but 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 this 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 workplace in Western culture is is the space where we we fall into this idea of of being hashtag blessed by climbing the ladder, and mostly we climb the ladder by pushing other people down. That we those who get to the top, those who are blessed to be the CEO, have crushed everyone in their path. I'm not saying that's true of every CEO, but 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 that we have this idea of do what it takes to get to the top. But Jesus says not so. For his disciples, blessed are those who express their strength, who express their abilities, their capabilities, their expertise in ways that are gentle. Because the earth belongs to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This hunger and thirst isn't, isn't just about uh, our own personal righteousness, but it involves that. But it's about wanting to see justice come to the earth, wanting to see salvation come not just to us, but to others. And, and Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it, for they will be filled. There's inherent here this idea that, that this isn't something that I can do for myself. See, the Pharisees uh, in Jesus' day, the, 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 the religious elite, they didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They sought to achieve it. They sought to enforce it through rituals and practices and making laws where there were no laws and, and where there were laws making them stricter and, and, and harsher so that they could enforce righteousness upon themselves and others. And Jesus says, that's not how to be blessed. Blessed are those who hunger, who pursue it, but hunger and thirst for it. He says they will be filled. Because righteousness comes from God. Our own personal righteousness, our own ability to live in a righteous way before God is is something that fills us from God. Justice, though we're called to pursue it and hunger and thirst for it, justice on our earth is something that, that comes from from God filling the earth with his presence. Salvation is not something we can achieve. It is, it is something that comes from God filling, from Jesus coming. And so blessed are those who hunger and thirst because they, they understand that this has to come from God and can't be done in our own right. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus shifts from, from righteousness to mercy because because those who were understood to be the righteous in his day, the, the legalistic Pharisees, were the most merciless people that anyone had ever met. 
Jesus said you would move heaven and earth. He said to the Pharisees, you'd move heaven and earth to make a disciple of yourselves. And then you wouldn't lift a finger to help them. You tie millstones around their neck. Millstones are the giant stones used to crush grapes. And so Jesus said to the Pharisees, your model of righteousness is unmerciful. It crushes people. And so off the back of saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Our righteousness has to embody mercy at the same time as it pursues righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, those who are gracious and merciful and not judgmental to others, for they will be shown mercy. All throughout Jesus' teaching, the, the ability for us to receive the mercy he freely pours out is connected with our ability to show mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so Jesus shifts from righteousness to mercy and then he zeroes in on, on the issue that the Pharisees, the religious elites of Jesus' day completely missed the issue of the heart. And as we journey through uh, the, the next parts of the Sermon on the Mount throughout its entirety, in fact, we'll see that it's all about our heart. All about our heart finding expression in action, but, but all about our heart. And so Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Not blessed are those who wash the cups right, who wash their hands right, who, who tick all the religious boxes. Not blessed are those who are in the crowd that shows up at church every Sunday. Though much blessing comes with that. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. It's about bringing your heart before God, knowing that only He, as one who is poor in spirit, as one who is hungering and thirst for righteousness, only He can bring purity of heart, but, but that it's the condition of our heart that determines our relationship with God. Not any external action that we can achieve in our own right. And it's, and it's the, the purity of heart, the, the, the integrity of heart, the relationship of our heart with God that flows out into the action that flows out into being part of the crowd that shows up at church every Sunday not because you kind of think that that will enable you to see God better but because you see God you see that there's nothing else worth more than worshipping God blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God Blessed. Sorry, I've missed one on my slide. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says next, for they will be called children of God. And so Jesus is the great reconciler uh, of, of humanity to God and, and also the great reconciler of humanity to, to each other. And so Paul describes his journey of following Jesus, his uh, apostleship, his called to be a leader of God's people as a ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people who were once at war with each other together. Paul describes it in this way, that in Jesus there is now no male or female, 
no Greek or, or, or Gentile and Jew, no slave or free, that, that all of the social barriers, all of the cultural and religious barriers that existed that cause war and conflict in our world, that in Jesus they're rendered irrelevant. So in a world that seeks to fight and win wars for blessing, for oil, from which many blessings flow, if you take the worldly model, in a world where conflicts in families rip families apart, in a world where racial divides rip people apart, cause conflict within nations and between nations, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be peacemakers, to be people that bring together, not tear apart. And in doing so, we'll be called children of God. And, and in Jewish culture, to be called the child of something meant, uh, obviously, either to be naturally that person's child, but, but in a metaphorical sense, meant to be someone who embodies what that thing is all about. And so Jesus is saying, to be my disciple, you're to be all about making peace. You're to be all about reconciling the world together. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus' elaboration on, on verse 10 in which he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus returns in the last blessing that he pronounces to this idea that, that the kind of thing that he says is blessed is completely opposite to what the world says is blessed. He says that, that kingdom blessing, that this life of discipleship isn't about seeking just the comfort, the material blessings, the avoidance of pain and suffering that everyone else in the world seeks after. It's about seeking one thing, following Jesus. And if you follow Jesus in a way that means that other people persecute you and insult you and say mean things about you and falsely accuse you, if you follow him in such a way that that happens, he says you're blessed. Because great is your reward in heaven that... that Heaven doesn't belong to the ruling elites. It belongs to those who faithfully follow Jesus regardless of what the world does to them or says about them. He says that's the kind of people that in his eyes are blessed. And in the book of Acts we see on, on Peter and John's social media account after they've been flogged and whipped uh, by the religious ruling leaders for refusing to not proclaim the good news about Jesus. And it says, And they walked out of there and posted on Facebook, Hashtag blessed, we just got persecuted for the name of Jesus. They heard this teaching from Jesus way back when. They didn't really understand it at this point. We know they bumbled along, but, but they grabbed hold of this idea that Jesus proclaimed on the Sermon of the Mount of what it really meant to be a follower of Jesus. And in their early days of, of, of trying to be the leaders of the church, of living out what Jesus taught them here 
in the early days of his ministries, they grabbed onto it and said, you know what? We're blessed. We've lost everything. We've given up everything to follow Jesus. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're, we're, we're poor in spirit. I'm sure they mourned what was happening to them, but, but they grasped this and they realized that in God's kingdom eyes, in God's perspective, they're blessed. They were the most blessed people in Jerusalem that day, not the high priest in the temple, not the governor in the Roman palace, not King Herod. The most blessed people were Peter and John who were suffering for the name of Jesus. And so it's not that we should seek suffering, but we should seek Jesus to the degree that should suffering come, then that's just a sign of being blessed. And then Jesus kind of sums up in your Bibles, there'll be another heading there and we're tempted to stop there after these pronouncements of blessing, of who is blessed. But Jesus kind of sums this up. He sums up this introduction of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I didn't forget them. I just got my slides jumbled. Sorry. He sums up this idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus with saying that you are salt and light. And I want you, whether you've done it before or not this morning, to connect these next few verses, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16, with what comes before. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And so in Jesus' day, salt had lots of different purposes. It was a preservative, it was a flavor enhancer as it is today. Uh, in small quantities, it was used as a fertilizer, but, but it was also used as, it was so valuable to life, it was also used as like money, that it was a kind of system of trade. And uh, if you're familiar with the French Revolution, uh, the, the, the salt tax was one of the, the things that broke France, that, that salt was so essential that when money was worth nothing, that people used salt to trade it. And even today, that you know, we have fairly free access to it. We can even get the pink stuff now. But, but salt is something that is essential to life. If you don't have salt in your body, some of us have too much salt in our body, but if you don't have salt in your body, you'll die. And so Jesus was probably meaning all of this and everything, but, but essentially he was meaning salt is essential to the well-being of creation, particularly humanity. And the thing about salt is, lots of people have got different suggestions about what Jesus meant here, but salt can't actually lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. It doesn't just poof into other things. And so the point is, as salt cannot be anything other than salty and still be salt, disciples cannot be anything other than salty and still be a disciple. Disciples cannot be anything other than the poor in spirit, than the mourners, than the meek, than the hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Disciples cannot be anything other than radically different to the entire world surrounding them and still be a disciple. If salt loses its saltiness, well then... It's not salt and it probably never was. 
If a disciple of Jesus loses that which makes them radically different to the world around them, then they're not really a disciple of Jesus and perhaps they never really were. Maybe they were just one of the crown. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He says, a tower built on a hill cannot be hidden. Get this image of, in ancient times, of a tower being built on a hilltop and you can see it from every side. There's no way of hiding it from the surrounding area. He says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. The kind of lamps they had didn't use electricity, they were flames. What happens to a candle or an oil lamp if you put it under a bowl? You don't just not see the light. I used to always think this was just about hiding the light and this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine and I'm not going to hide it. The point is, if you put a bowl over the lamp, it goes out. Not only do you not see the light, it's not there anymore. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. It's impossible, it's absurd. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If you light up a light in a dark room, how clear is it to see that it's different to the darkness surrounding it? Can you notice a light when someone, if you walk into a dark house and turn the light on, can you notice it? You can see it, can't you? You can see that it is a different thing to everything around it. But not only can you see it, what does it do to everything around it? Transforms it. See, the light of the world doesn't just be light itself, it lights up everything around it. And so just as salt can't be salty and still be salt, can't be not salty and still salt, a disciple can't be uh, not radically different and still be a disciple, a disciple cannot hide away what makes them a follower of Jesus so that others don't see it and still be a disciple. This is not that we all must be evangelists, that we all must be street corner preachers, but, but that there must be something about us that is so obviously different. That is so obviously more dazzlingly beautiful than the darkness that exists in the world, that if people spend long enough with us, they can't help but see it. And so Jesus says, don't snuff out the light of the world. He doesn't say you carry it. He doesn't say you carry salt. He doesn't say you carry light. He says, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. It's not something you can hide or cover up. You are either it or you are not. And so in this list of the kinds of people that are blessed in kingdom terms and in this kind of summary statement about salt and light, Jesus opens. He's teaching about what it means to be a disciple 
with perhaps some of the most challenging words in all of Scripture. That we perhaps sometimes miss because we put headings on them like the Beatitudes. And instead of, I'm not a language expert, so I don't get the difference between blessed and blessed, but, but I've intentionally used the word blessed, pronounced it that way this morning, because in my head, blessed, it's, oh, blessed are the poor. You know, it's cute and lovely. But no, that's not the word. It is blessed. In this kind of familiar passage for disciples of Jesus, we have a profoundly challenging statement. What does it mean to be salt and light? Well, I suggest that it means, if I can go back to the slides, Peter. I suggest that it means at the heart of it, rejecting, not that we reject God's blessings and we can't have nice things, but rejecting this is the idea of what blessed looks like, of, of the bling, of the touchdowns, of the, of the free gifts, and embracing a life that means we are the poor in spirit, the dependent entirely upon God. We are those that enter into the pain of this world and grieve and mourn for what should be. We are those that are meek, that, that use power in gentle ways. We are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for release of captives, for, for personal purity and holiness before God. We are the merciful, that, that we would be known as those who embrace those who have erred, who have gone wrong and pick them up as Jesus is merciful, that we would be merciful. That we are the pure in heart, that we're not the compromising, we're not... We're not those that were merciful to the world, that, that we're not those who are okay with sin, that are okay with you know, letting our standards go and a bit of this is okay and a bit of that. That we are the peacemakers, that, that we are the ones who are resolute to be disciples of Jesus regardless of what persecution comes. I want to suggest that that's what it looks like to be salt and light to embrace a completely different worldview. To pursue Jesus not as a hanger-on to the crowd, but as a committed disciple. I invite our worship team up. I want to encourage us as a church to embrace different. Stop trying to fit into the world as a Christian. Embrace different. Stand up in the world as salt and light. And as the final statement of this scripture says, reminds us that it's not all about us. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before all people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. called to live for God's glory so I'm going to encourage you to stand with me now and I'm going to pray and and then we're going to worship to finish Um, so I'm going to pray for us all 
But then I want to leave you with an invitation. If you are here this morning and you feel like you've only ever been or you've drifted back to be just part of the crowd, if following Jesus, if being a student of Jesus is not the single governing principle of your life, but you want it to be, and you want to make that stand this morning, then um, I encourage you that I'm just going to be out the front here and I'd love to pray for you. But if you're uncomfortable with that and you know someone else here that you'd be more comfortable praying with, then go to them and say, hey, I don't want to be part of the crowd. I want to be a disciple. Can you pray with me? So I'll leave you with that invitation to, to come at the end of our worship time as people head off for morning tea. Just, just come to the front and we'll pray or go to a friend and we'll pray. They can pray. I'll leave you with that invitation. I'm going to pray for all of us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we begin this journey through the Sermon on the Mount, through Jesus' own teachings, I pray that whether we're familiar with it or whether it's the first time we've ever opened up this portion of the Bible, Lord, that we would be radically shaped by it so that we would be radically different that we would be salt and light in our families, in our local community, in our nation and across the world. Lord, I pray that today we would kiss goodbye to normal and embrace being radically different. In Jesus' almighty name, I pray that he will be our one and only vision. Amen. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love for you to become a part of the Ask Baptist family. Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.